0: Well, it's good to be back. I got to listen to Stephen's sermon last week. He did a fantastic job and just want to give thanks to God. Yeah, he did. I want to give thanks to God for him and uh, just the blessings of uh, strong leaders that God has given us here at this church. I'm thankful to be back with you. We're continuing our series in the Psalms. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. It's on page 509 in the Black Bibles that you'll see nearby if you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along with us as we read the text. Uh, page 509, Psalm 110, the series we're calling Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. And so we're trying to learn how to live in the tension of being very real emotionally and being real before God and real in community with each other with our emotions, but also to believe in God's absolute truth, submitting ourselves to His truth. And we see that worked out in the messiness of of prayer and worship, and lament, and all of these different aspects of that in the Psalms. So it's been a great exercise for us, helping us to grow in our faith. Uh, we are now in book 5 of the Psalms. So We've talked about this before. There's kind of five mega sections of the Psalms. So we're in the final section, started with Psalm 107 a, a couple of weeks ago. And so in book 5, what we see is uh, the Israelites have come back from their exile, And now book 5 is celebrating that God is going to keep His promises, that God is going to save the world, right? There There have been these fantastic promises in the Old Testament, like the promise to Abraham, where He said, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed through your descendants, right? And then He made other great promises to King David, that there would be this forever king reigning in the line of King David. And so we have all these other promises in the Old Testament as well that are now, they believe, the Israelites writing and collecting the Psalms in the, in the last section, like, it's, it's happening, right? God has brought them back from exile, they're, they're believing, they're strongly proclaiming God's gonna do this. The problem is we still don't know exactly how He's gonna do it, right? Uh, the Psalms are written before Jesus came, and so they don't fully comprehend exactly how that's going to work out. And so Psalm 110 is a prophetic Psalm that's giving us a window into how that's going to happen through Jesus. Okay, So it's a prophecy. So if you're taking a test uh, and you're given different options on the test, like maybe the test would say, is the Messiah going to be king? Or is the Messiah going to be priest? Or is the Messiah going to be C, all of the above? What would the answer be? C, all of the above. Very good. So that's the title of our sermon this morning. Psalm 110. The answer is all of the above. Okay, All of the above. And this is one of the incredible things when you read the Old Testament. And then you read the New Testament and you put those together. Jesus fulfills all of these promises of the Old Testament written thousands of years apart by by different authors. One God moving men to write these different stories, these different prophecies, they all come to fruition in Jesus. And so there's this really beautiful reassurance and confidence that we have when we see all these different streams meeting in Jesus and His fulfillment of these prophecies. So let's read Psalm 110. It's going to have some strange stuff in it, uh stuff that's a little culturally alien for us, but we'll try to make sense of that as we move along. This is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let me pray and we'll ask God to teach us this morning. God, we we thank you for your word. Uh, We receive it as a gift from You, and we pray that You would give us a posture of humility and openness that we would be able to learn from You. God, I pray for those of us that are already committed to You and to Your Word, that You'd help us to see uh, new things here, that You'd help us to understand what You would have us to do, uh, how You would have us to live, that You would help us to be even more amazed at Jesus. For those of us that are doubting, that are asking questions, God, I pray that You would give us an open mind. You would open our hearts Open our minds so that we would be able to consider who you are, what you have to say. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's many times in life when uh, you're given options, you're given two different options and, and you want both. Uh, I remember when I was first dating my wife, I was amazed that I'd found a woman that was both beautiful and loved Jesus. Before that, I was a dumb teenager. I didn't think both were possible, right? Uh, no offense to everyone else out there. I'm sure all of you fit that. All the ladies here fit that description, right? But at the time, I thought, man, I'm going to have to settle for one or the other, but I, I got both. I got all of the above. I heard one pastor talking about this uh, passage, and he had kind of a, a strange analogy he used from uh, the 70s. There was this great commercial on in the 70s, a lot of you remember this, where someone's walking down the street with uh, some peanut butter. Someone's walking down the street with some chocolate, and they run into each other. Do you all remember that? And what happens? They're like you dumped your peanut butter on my chocolate and you, you dropped your chocolate in my peanut butter. And then they eat it and they're like, wow, this is great. And that was the invention of the Reese's peanut butter cup. That, that is how it came about historically. And, and what we have here in the text is, is a similar collision. We have this collision of two things that in the Old Testament law, we're not supposed to go together. These two things were not supposed to go together. A king and a priest. And so what we have is we have a Messiah. We have a Christ who is both king and priest. In the Old Testament law, those things were separated out, right? Because kind of like separation of powers in our government, there are some problems that might come along if one leader tried to do everything. Um, and so that was separated out in the law. And here we see those things coming together. And King David is writing this. We see this as a psalm of David. And he's writing this, and he's the one that had seen Saul, the previous king, try to be a king priest. And it went very badly, Right? Saul was judged for that. Saul was judged for acting as a priest when he was the king. He wasn't supposed to do that. Uh, He was basically kind of taking on a magical, animistic view of God by offering sacrifices like good luck charms, trying to manipulate God, trying to manipulate the situation. And God judged him for that and said, no, 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 you're not supposed to do that. And so David had seen this go wrong, but David still prophesied that in the future, as God saves the world, keeping the promises to Abraham, keeping the promises uh, through the Mosaic Covenants to God's people there, keeping the promises that He'd made to King David Himself, that these things were going to come together in the person of Christ, in the person of the Messiah. So the answer of how how is Israel going to be saved? How is the world going to be saved? How are all these promises going to be true? Well, the answer is all the above. God's going to work all these things together into one person. So we see this beautiful tension kind of like we've seen in the psalm series. We have this tension of don't give up emotional authenticity for the sake of absolute truth. And don't give up absolute truth for the sake of emotional authenticity. Hold those things together. Be an all of the above person. Be a uh, both and person. With Jesus, because He is Jesus, you can have your cake and eat it too. Right? You can have your cake and eat it too. That might not work in real life. right? It's an ancient idiom that means you can't... Uh, eat your cake and still hold on to it, still have it, but with Jesus you can. With Jesus you can because He is both God and man. He is both king and priest. And that's the promise we have in Psalm 110. Let's look at the first promise that's made. Basically, it's two sections. We've got two promises, what scholars sometimes call an oracle, right, which is like a prophecy. And so this is the word of the Lord here. So it says it's a psalm of David. At the beginning, and in verse 1, it says, the Lord, L-O-R-D, all capitals, says to my Lord, lowercase, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so, first of all, I just want to say when it says, the Lord says, or Yahweh says, Jehovah says, all capital L-O-R-D, that's what that translation is. Whenever your Bible has all caps L-O-R-D, that is the personal name of Yahweh is the great I Am uh, by which He revealed Himself to Moses. And so that's that... specific name of Yahweh or Jehovah, different ways people pronounce it. When it says, the Lord says, um, that's kind of like code language for, for this is a prophecy from God. God has spoken, thus saith the Lord. Okay, so that's why people call it an oracle or a prophecy. This is words from God. God's saying something, so it's like pay attention, right? We need to wake up, we need to pay attention. And what he starts describing is this coming king. And so we've got a king and a priest in this first section, this first oracle, this first prophecy is going to focus on him being a king. So uh, the answer is king. Okay? First of all, he is king. King David already knows that. A king's going to come from his uh line. That's the promise that was already made, and the promises made to David. We've seen that a lot in the Psalms. We're we're tracking with that. That makes sense. A future king is going to come. Problem is it says the Lord says to my Lord. And Jesus points this out in Matthew 22 and in Mark chapter 12, and I believe it shows up in some other places as well, that this is kind of problematic because in the ancient Near East, the son was always lesser than the father. That's a little weird for our culture because we are kind of dominated in the West by a cult of youth, right? So we worship youth in our culture, generally speaking. So we don't respect our elders. We're terrible at that. That's one of the biggest problems in our culture so this is hard for us to hear this is hard for us to understand uh, what the disconnect is here but Jesus challenges the Jewish leaders in his day and says how could that be possible that the son of David would be called Lord by David that doesn't even make sense in an ancient near eastern context for us we're like sure yeah that's fine doesn't bother me but in the ancient near east that was crazy because the son was always seen as less than the father are you tracking with me And so David is writing this, and David is saying, Yahweh says to my Lord, David's calling the Messiah his own Lord, his master. So he's saying, Yahweh speaks to my master and says, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so Jesus says, hey guys, we've got a problem here. This is not just some ordinary human. This can't just be an ordinary fulfillment. This can't just be a better warrior son of David. Right, this can't just be a guy that conquers more people than David did because he's he's bowed down to by David. He's proclaimed as master by David himself, and that stumped the Jewish leaders. And so here we see this fulfillment. We or we see this prophecy where he says, "Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, says to my lord, my master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool." Um, I want to show you a picture, kind of to visually help you understand this. This is an ancient a throne in India. And I picked this picture. It's kind of dark. I picked this picture because it's way up high and elevated. So in the ancient Near East, the throne where the king sat would be high and elevated. We tend to think, I I think in more European terms or more medieval terms where it's just a fancy chair on the ground, right? But it would often be up at the height of multiple stairs. And when you say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, what he's saying is, Yahweh is inviting the son of David to sit on the throne with him. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you're equal with me. You're at my right hand. You belong on my throne. And I'm going to give you world dominion power. Do you hear how startling that is? That you would say, some human king is going to share the throne of Jehovah God, of Yahweh, the God of the universe, the Creator. And that's where where uh, Jesus was really needling the Jewish leaders, saying this is... This is startling, guys. Pay attention to what is happening in Psalm 110. And so Jesus just kind of pokes and prods the Jewish leaders with how startling this is and then it becomes the most often quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. His disciples were paying attention and they were like, this is, this is a key. There's a lot of important stuff happening here that helps us to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is both this human king and He is God. You see how that comes out in the text? And so... This becomes a very important text that is used in multiple places uh, in the New Testament. So what we see is equality with Yahweh, equality with God by Him inviting that king, that future king, that future son of David, that king that would rule, that came from David, to sit on the throne with Him. Come here, sit on the throne with me, be at my right hand. And then in verse uh, 2 and 3, we say He says this in verse 2, "...the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies." So this is a continuation of what he's saying. He's saying you will rule. Yahweh is establishing your, your rule. You will have world domination. And in verse 3, "...your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours." this is translated differently in different translations, different texts, and so what I want to help you to see is, kind of no matter what the translation says, you're gonna, you might have different variations out there as you're looking at it. No matter what the translation says, there's the idea of a free will offering of people or of a volunteering. Sometimes the word volunteer shows up there. It's this idea of people giving themselves freely in response to his reign. And that should remind you to the heart change that we are supposed to have when we come into collision with King Jesus, when we see Him for how great He is, sitting on the throne with God Himself, when we recognize how big and how awesome Jesus is, our Messiah, our King, that causes a heart change. In the New Testament, this heart change is often referred to as regeneration. Right? New life. Or being born again. Have you all heard that phrase before? Being born again? See that phrase show up? throughout the New Testament, especially in John chapter 3. This idea, I now have a new heart. Instead of having the heart where I didn't like God's law and I wanted to rebel against Him, now the law is written on my heart and I actually want to do what God says. And so this reminds us of this very important principle that God's grace is what leads us to obedience. God's grace, God's kingship, God's power as God is what moves our hearts to do what He says. The the Bible does not tell you to do what God says in order to get you to like Him. The Bible tells you that God loves you and He revealed that to you in John chapter 3. It says God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Whoever would believe in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. That offering of God to us moves us to offer ourselves to God. You've got to get that order correct in your life, or you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable. You'll be pretending to know God when you don't really know God. But when you come into collision with this God that offers Himself for us, then that melts your heart. Then the law is written on your heart. Then you want to do what God says. Then you love Him. Then you're amazed at how good He is, and that begins to change your life. Do we come automatically, become automatically perfect then and do everything right? No. I'm sorry, bad news, no. But it's a process, right? As He melts our heart, we begin being receptive. We begin listening. We begin submitting ourselves to the Word because we see that He loves us. We see that He's good and we have now a changed view of God. We see Him as this good, loving Father adopting us and caring for us instead of this ogre that's out to get us. And so that change of heart is reflected in the language here of God's people freely offering themselves. God's people volunteering. God's people saying, here I am. Take me, use me. I, I want to give glory to you in my life. And that's this beautiful change that you see taking place here. It's got also this strange language at the end of verse three From the womb of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. And again, this is just the picture of world worldwide renewal, right? Uh, Jesus talks about in John chapter seven that the Old Testament promises that if uh, you believe in him that these rivers of living water will spring from within us right there will be this freshness there'll be this new life that overflows from within us instead of the dead uh the dead pools that we were it's going to be this new life springing up and so it's this idea of, of newness of freshness of eternal youth of again regeneration of of new life coming forth in God's people so that's the idea of the Messiah being king and again we're we're somewhat used to the idea of Messiah being king it's startling here that the, this future king is equal with God himself, right? That's startling, but they are, they knew he was going to be king. They knew that. They knew the Messiah was going to be a king. He was going to be the, you know, this future king that would have an eternal throne. But here we're beginning to unpack, and this is why it becomes so important in the New Testament. We're unpacking that this king is actually equal with Yahweh himself. The next thing we see is that the answer is priest. He is also to be a priest. So look at verse 4. Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a hard one. Uh, Back in Genesis, uh, Abraham rescues uh, Lot and some other people. Uh, He goes out and he rescues some people. And then there's this interesting story that takes place uh, where Abraham offers tithes to this guy, Melchizedek. So there's this guy Melchizedek, and the, the Hebrew word Melchizedek, uh, Malik, or Malik is king, and Zedek is righteousness. His name is literally king of righteousness, right? So we've got the Hebrew here, which makes it sound really strange because we don't speak Hebrew, but it's basically his name is king of righteousness. And so Abraham offers tithes, offers uh, submission to this king of righteousness, this uh, priest of God Most High that just kind of appears mysteriously in Genesis. The author to Hebrews makes a big point of his mysterious appearance. Because throughout Genesis, think about what is one of the common texts that you see in Genesis. Any of you ever tried to read the book of Genesis? Some of you? The book of Genesis is, is a combination of of kind of two main types of writing, right? One type of writing you would call narrative, right? It's stories. So there's stories. Great, I can read that fast. And then there's this other kind of writing that's a little harder to read in Genesis, you kind of bog down, you know, you know what that is, what I'm talking about? The, the lists, the, the begats, the genealogies, right? So-and-so had so-and-so had so-and-so, and he was so-and-so's son, and he lived for this many years, and then he had so-and-so, and then he died, and that's kind of where we bog down a little bit, right? And so Genesis is full of those kinds of genealogy lists, those lists that point out, uh, who is, whose son. This guy's, this guy's son, this guy belongs to him. Again, remember ancient Near Eastern mindset. Parents matter. I would argue, biblically, parents should matter to us too, right? But we'll, we'll put that aside for a minute and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that conviction another time. But parents really matter. The list really matters. The descendancy really matters. Who you came from really matters in this culture. And the author to Hebrews in Hebrews 6 and 7 and 8 talks a lot about Melchizedek and says, hey, this is interesting. We're not told who he comes from. So obviously the who he comes from issue doesn't establish his priesthood. So he's not a priest based on who he comes from. Do you get the logic? That's the logic of Hebrews. The logic of Hebrews is who he comes from doesn't establish Melchizedek's priesthood. It's a different kind of priesthood. It's not like the Levitical priesthood. And then the author to Hebrews takes it even farther and says it's not only different from the Levitical priesthood, the Old Testament, a Mosaic Covenant priesthood, the system they were under, uh, for most of the time of the Old Testament, right? The system that Jesus came in and kind of shook up a little bit. So, the, so that system, that priesthood, not only is different, because that priesthood was established on descent, who you came from, genealogies, parents. This priesthood is different, but it's also better. That's what he says in Hebrews. It's actually better. It's not just different, but it's better. It's based on a promise, not just based on physical descent. Which is really fascinating because here we have Hebrews aligning with what Paul says in Romans and Galatians. So in Romans and Galatians, Paul says the new covenant through Jesus actually precedes, comes before the old covenant through Moses, because uh, through Moses or through Abraham, God had a relationship with His people by faith. So faith came before the law of the old covenant. And so he's saying, see, Jesus is in keeping with the system that God had in place before Moses and those laws ever came right so that's paul's argument and then the author to hebrews offers a very parallel similar argument and he says there was this different kind of priesthood again before the mosaic priesthood before the levitical priesthood before that law priesthood that they were all used to there was a different priesthood before that so paul in romans and galatians says it was always by faith even before moses came along the author to hebrews says there was always this other special kind of priesthood Based on promise, not based on the law that came before. So again, we see here in Scripture how how it all fits together. Things that we think uh, are different and confusing and conflicts actually all come to fruition in Jesus. So the author to Hebrews says, see, Jesus fulfills this because Jesus wasn't a priest in the line of Levi. Jesus was a king in the line of Judah, descended from David. So that's how we establish his right to the kingdom. To the kingship, but he's also a priest that intercedes for us forever. The author to Hebrews makes much of this that he sat down because he was done because it was a final, finished sort of sacrifice, right? The Levitical priests, they were sinners. And they had to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people. And they had to keep offering sacrifices because the author to Hebrews says it, it never really settled the deal. All it did was point out the problem. We have a sin problem. And you'd come back to worship the next week. We still have a sin problem. And you'd come to worship again. We still have a sin problem. And Jesus settled it forever. Jesus settled it forever. It's finished in Jesus. So look at this in the text. First of all, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then he says, uh, excuse me, back in verse 1, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The author of Hebrews makes a big deal out of that sitting down. He says, You only sit down when the work is done. And so we have this assurance that the work is finished. As Jesus said on the cross, It is finished. It's done. He doesn't have to keep offering himself. And the author of Hebrews makes a, makes a big deal out of this, out of Psalm 110, that this, this is important it's a completed work it's a better sort of priesthood it's a better priesthood than this earthly sort of priesthood that we see so what does he mean that he's after the order of melchizedek i just want to address what a lot of people if you've studied the bible much some people would actually teach that um, melchizedek was jesus okay have y'all ever heard that before that melchizedek was jesus um a lot of you melchizedek scholars out there maybe have, have dealt with that um but that's that's an idea out there right that Melchizedek actually was Jesus. I would argue he's not. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian if you disagree with me, right? But I would argue that he's not because he's saying he's in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was mysterious. You know, he kind of shows up without this uh, list of where he's from. And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Um, But it's a pattern. What we call this in Christian theology is typology. You have a type and then Jesus fulfills that type. You have a pattern and then Jesus fulfills that pattern. And that's one of the things I'm telling you that the more you read the Old Testament, the more you read the New Testament, you'll be amazed that all these types and all these patterns are fulfilled in Jesus. So I use the illustration of stencils here to understand order. Um, this word order is in the order of Melchizedek or after the manner of Melchizedek. Uh, have, have any of you ever used stencils to make a sign or write letters? Some of you done that before. You can have these cutouts and you can spray paint through to like, you know, put the numbers on your sidewalk or maybe you stencil if you craft on paper or something you write and you can use it as a pattern to to push the ink through or push the paint through the pattern there and that's kind of what typology is like right every analogy falls short but this is a little bit of what typology is like this is a little bit of what uh the bible is talking about when it says um that he's in the order of Melchizedek that that he's following the pattern he's in the stencil of Melchizedek he's like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was mysterious, and his priesthood wasn't based on being a descendant of Levi. Matter of fact, he was greater than Levi because he came before Levi, right? And Abraham, who's the father of the Levi, Levitical priests Levites, Abraham offered offerings to Melchizedek. So the author of the Hebrew says, "See, he's, he's greater. He comes before. This guy was in submission to the other guy, who's actually greater. So he's in this pattern. He's in this line of Melchizedek." And so what we see here is that this shows us that this is this is something better, fuller, bigger, more beautiful. If you want to turn to Hebrews 7, it's on page 1005, but I was going to uh, just read what I believe should be our reaction to this, what our response should be in Hebrews. Because the author to Hebrews unpacks all this. He makes these explanations. He, he makes these connections for us and uh, it's actually 1004 in the black bibles but it's hebrews chapter 7 i'm going to read verse 18 through 25 so this is our reaction this is what our reaction should be and then we'll we'll wrap up our reaction to this this better priesthood that jesus offers us he says on the one hand a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness for the law made nothing perfect but on the other hand a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to god he says, the, the law made nothing perfect. The law declared the perfection of God. Right? So again, remember, uh, we, we like to talk sometimes that the law and the sacrifices that Moses established were like flannel graph, uh, like cartoons displaying, teaching, visualizing for us. We're sinners. We need a savior. We need a sacrifice. We're not clean. God is clean. We need, we need to be cleaned up to come into his presence, right? So the sacrificial system was always teaching. Pumping these ideas out there, communicating visually and physically so people could get it. This this pattern of who God is. God's holy, we're not. We need a sacrifice to come into God's presence. But it didn't actually make people perfect. The law didn't actually make people perfect, it just helped people understand we're not perfect. Right? You kept coming back to worship going, All right, I still have a problem. God's holy, I'm not. Right? You just kept kind of having that drilled into your head. And so he says the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this law, as Galatians would say, leads us, points us to Christ. We need Christ. We need the perfect sacrifice. We have the temporary sacrifices in the Old Testament system, and we need the perfect, whole, final sacrifice of Jesus. Verse 20, he says, And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. starting talking about the Levites under Moses' system. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind, you are a priest forever. So again, He's saying it's, it's based on a promise, not based on where He came from. Not based on His parents. This makes Jesus the guarantor, the promiser of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues Forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That should be our response. To recognize that we can draw near to him. We can draw near to God. And so what I want to set up for you is whether whether you are someone who's been trying to follow God your whole life or you're someone that's been trying to run from God your whole life, either way, your problem is the same. Either way, our problem is the same. We don't fully believe that our God is a God that we can draw near to through the sacrifice of Christ. We often believe if we're religious like me that I can draw near to God because of my own goodness. Because I've been faithful. I've stuck with my wife and my family for all these years because I've worked hard, because I've given to charity, because I've been nice to people, right? There's this temptation to fall into thinking I can draw near to God because of that. And Jesus continually hammered the religious leaders of the day and says, that's not enough. you have an unclean heart, you can only draw near to God through Christ, through the grace of this God that offers permanent, forever sacrifices of Himself. And if you've been running the other way from God, if you've been trying to find salvation in other things in this life, if you've been trying to find salvation in uh, in money or power or sex or... Pleasure or whatever it may be, you have to understand that you can't really draw near to that hope of everything being right, of everything feeling good, of everything being all together. You can only draw near to that in God Himself through the work of God Himself and His forever priest, Jesus, who is both man and God. Who is both the King sitting on the throne with Yahweh is also this priest that offered the final sacrifice of Himself. Taking our sins upon Himself on the cross. So again, no matter where we come from, whether we're good people or rebellious people, we need to recognize that Jesus is the only way to draw near to God. Jesus is the only way to draw near to Him. And that will radically change our, our lives. That will actually make us into these kind of volunteering people, these willing people that just willingly give our lives like Romans 12 talks about in view of God's mercy, we offer ourselves living sacrifices. Actually living for others instead of just living for us. I don't want to just live for me anymore. I want to actually make a difference in this world. I want to live for other people. I want to actually love people the way Jesus loved other people. And I can only get there by drawing near to God through this perfect sacrifice of Jesus Himself. The text closes with some hard words. Verse 5 says, look back to the text. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. Uh, scholars point out that here we've got a flipping back and forth. Now uh, the Master is at the right hand of Yahweh, and now Yahweh is at the right hand of the Master. Right? This is the flipping back and forth of their, they really are co-equal with each other. They are one. We talk about the Trinity: one God but three persons. Right? So one God but three persons. Uh, sometimes I've, I've heard it helpful to describe it as uh, one what but three whos. And so we have that interchangeability yet distinction within our understanding of who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit distinct from each other to some degree as as persons, but one as God. God, Yahweh says, Messiah, sit on the throne with me. And then we've got this flipping back and forth. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, He will lift up His head. We, we try to avoid being the kind of church that motivates you through fear. Um, but we want to remember that sometimes the Bible motivates us through fear. Right? God is going to judge. God is going to judge wickedness. And if people have done evil things to you, you want a God that judges evil. The problem with that is we've all got evil inside of us. So the biblical solution to that evil problem is there is a God that is going to judge evil once and for all. He's going to shatter evil these evil, wicked chiefs and kings throughout the world. He's going to pile up corpses. It says, language we don't like. I, I understand that. The 21st century people. But it's here in the text. He is going to defeat evil once and for all. But his plan of escape is through Jesus. In John chapter 3, again, we're reminded we live in this time between the times where Jesus came. Not in that condemnation that's coming. Revelation 19 says He's coming on His horse. But right now, He's giving us time for repentance. Right now, He's giving us time to turn and trust in Him and willingly follow Him for His glory. Let me pray for us and then we'll have communion together to celebrate. God, we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You've offered Yourself for us as we partake in communion. uh, We remember, we reenact that You are our food and our drink. That You took the cup of wrath for us so that we can drink the cup of life. Thank You for giving Your life to us. Help us to trust You. Help us to live for others because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.